Megan Chu Math is a practicing nurse, clinical assistant professor at the University of British Columbia, and the regional director of communicable disease control at Vancouver Coastal Health. She holds a Master's of Science in Public Health from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and a PhD from the University of Oxford as a Trudeau Scholar. Megan is an active member of the World Health Organization's WHO Emergencies Program, with recent deployments to support the COVID-19 response in South Africa and the Ebola responses in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I invited Megan on the program to share her expertise on the topic of harm reduction policies here in North America. During our time together, we talk about her experience as a street nurse, her own purview on the topic of substance abuse, and her hope of a dignified national approach to assist our growing homeless and addicted populations worldwide. Megan's love and attention to our world's most marginalized communities is even more impressive than her storied experience in education. I hope you learn as much from her as I did. Well, there we are, Megan Chumath. Thank you so much for joining me today on True 30. I really appreciate you coming. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. Well, after we met in the summit late last year, I was beyond impressed with your clinical work as a child welfare, addiction, and marginalized women's health expert. And as I shared with you in the desert, I have personal interest in addiction and substance abuse because my family lost my little brother um, in 2007. So I wanted to talk to an expert like yourself um, about the remedies of my city specific to substance abuse, homelessness, um, addiction here in San Francisco, as well as many other cities here in North America that are utilizing a program called harm reduction. And it's something you know quite a bit about from your training, both as a nurse and now an academic and clinical professor at School of Nursing at the University of British Columbia. So can you help out my listeners in understanding what harm reduction is, where it came from, and then we can kind of get into why it's so uniformly adopted in North America, and then talk about like what's working with it and what's not. That would really be helpful. Would would love to have this conversation. Okay. Cool. And I think um, you know we really share the passion. I mean, I myself have some lived experience with substance use and, and came to the work through that. And um, one of my first jobs was at a needle and syringe program, which is kind of often um, how people think of harm reduction. So harm mm-hmm. reduction is is about reducing the unintended harms of illicit substances. Primarily, it started in that movement and has expanded beyond. But harms of substance use and um, and the impacts of prohibition uh, on on people's lived lives and, and coming coming at it coming at people with a sense of um, love and compassion. Yeah, and it, it's a really a, a public health approach to drug policy, um, and I think would love to have a conversation about the broader. Um, drug policies that it, it, it shouldn't stand in isolation. And so I think that's something um, I often talk about with whether it's families or clients that I'm working with. Um, but it's really the way we keep people alive. Like you, as yeah. I'm so, I'm so sorry for your, your experience with your brother and it, that's oh, thanks. sadly so many, so, so many people's experiences. And I think harm reduction is, is both a way to keep people alive where they can have that bridge to recovery um, you know, it's really it's really hard to get well and to um, to uh, reconnect with your family and your your work and your loved ones if you've yeah. had a fatal, fatal overdose. So that's at its core one of the the main um, reasons that harm reduction is there, and and it's a way really of um, people just 
uh, understanding and coming at people with love. It's off, love is actually often in that one in some of the more formal definitions. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. <clears throat> yeah, because let me read this. This is a, uh, from the Harm Reduction International. It says harm reduction encompasses a non-judgmental approach combined with a range of health and social services. These include, but not limited to, drug consumption rooms, also called overdose prevention centers or supervised consumption sites where drugs can be consumed under supervision, housing, and employment initiatives, which do not require abstinence as a precondition, drug checking services where people can check illegal drugs for alternatives, overdose prevention and reversal, psychosocial support, and the provision of information on safer drug use. Harm reduction refers to policies, programs, and practices that aim to minimize the negative health, social, and legal impacts associated with drug use. So I, that was from the international um, dot org piece. And so that coupled with what you're talking about, I watched a couple of your symposiums online where you talk specifically to this. And when you were teaching one of your nursing classes about this, how is it, where did it come from? Where did harm reduction originate? I think it's often understood to have originated in Liverpool, England. Some folks talk about the early movement in Sydney, Australia as well. And, um, Really, it came from people with lived experience uh, fighting against overdose. And, and Vancouver, my city where I live, also had a lot of fatal overdoses, heroin overdoses, and they are reversible. Um, yeah. you, know, you don't have to die from an opioid overdose. There is something called naloxone that reverses it. And we know that um, one of the other reasons people overdose is because their drugs are contaminated. And so uh, other early movements you talked to, so that's what an overdose prevention site or a supervised consumption site really does. It makes sure that you're not using alone and that there's someone right. there to save you. But what often is not as understood is what a critical gateway that is to health and social services, which are really what will ultimately, you know, allow people to lead a, a a more fulfilling life and reconnect with family. And so when I was a nurse at Insight, which is a super, one of the first supervised consumption sites in North America, where it was, you know, what, what's not, what's missed in the headlines and what people think we're enabling is actually the day-to-day -day interactions with people who use drugs who just see, oh, this person, unlike their experience on the street where people are just you know, angry with them or frustrated that they're homeless. Mm -hmm. They get to come inside, they get to be warm, they get to make eye contact, they get to have a cup of coffee. And all of those are part of the therapeutic intervention. And we actually have a, a detox, a traditional detox on the second floor and a women's only space as well, which many people don't realize. Hmm. So when people say, hey, I need a break from the street, I'm ready. It's not that it's a binary, like we believe in harm reduction and we don't believe in recovery. It's that it's actually a, a gateway, a very low barrier gateway above there. And I saw that time and time again, people that the system had given up on that people felt had really profound schizophrenia and that they weren't, you know, capable of living a traditional life, like actually have some break from their substance use, particularly if it was stimulants and then clear get upstairs, reconnect with their children, reconnect with loved ones. Um, you know, you meet the most amazing people in, in our inner cities and they're just like you and I, like they are our brothers and sisters and yep. they are like, I often felt, but for the, I'm not religious, but, but for the grace of God, go I as a, also someone that had struggled with substance use. So you know, more and more families have, have this experience and, and whether it's a coworker or a colleague and, understanding that harm reduction can be also about 
being open and non-judgmental, even with your own, in your own family. Um, that list doesn't have um, heroin prescription trials, which are or heroin prescription or um, other fentanyl prescribing, which is also sometimes called safe supply. And that's another intervention where not only do you, are you just um, able to reverse an overdose, you can prevent it by eliminating like the toxic element of the drug supply. And that's something we did at, at the North American Opiate Medication Initiative, or NIOMI, which was our first clinical trial based on the experiences in Switzerland, where we found that people were um, then able to get the street crime decreased in the Swiss studies and in ours. Um, there was, again, less homelessness. People didn't have to engage in the drug trade or survival sex work because they were no longer hustling for their next fix. And they were able to actually get a clean, safe supply and, and people could function and they could start to reconnect with their health care, start to deal with things they'd missed, start to get their mental health cleared, and then start to re-engage with family. And I, I'm just a big believer of um, like substances are criminalized often, not because they're dangerous, but it's actually the criminalization that leads to some of the most unintended harms, like the breaking and entering and mm -hmm. um, people being constantly cycling in and out of jail. That that doesn't help. Like we know that jail itself is a traumatic place. I don't know if your family ever went through this, but again, it's not, it's not a good safe space. It's not a good place for your mental health. And when we criminalize addiction, we're really giving people, just sending them further into this spiral. Agreed. And I, I watched my little brother going out of jail for decades. So it sucked because he'd go in and he'd come out worse. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he'd come out beat up. He always came out scared. And I don't want to go back, Joe, is what they always say. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want you to go back either, buddy. But, mm -hmm. you know, when you do illegal things, the police put you in jail. That's just kind of how it is. And so I talked with Christina Soto DeBerry, and I think you met her at the summit as well. And for those of you who didn't watch this episode, um, she is a the founder of Progressive Prosecutors Alliance here in California, and she has a storied history um, with, you know, as a prosecutor and working with uh, Gaston and working with Governor Newsom and just, just a rock star here. And she's part of this belief, you know, that we need to be more gentle. And progressive prosecutors are actually now meeting with the victims in this case and talking with both the victim and the assailant and saying, hey, I'm going to put you guys together. We're going to try and and deal with this. And based on the fact that you just mentioned is the recidivism rates are so high of going into jail once you get out. So the one thing we know, and this is just in all literature, it's very hard for anyone to agree on anything today in our culture, specifically here in America. Mm -hmm. But everyone agrees that our prisons need to be reformed and that mm -hmm. our jails are a mess and that it's not a real good alternative. And so, you know, what we do have here on the political bifurcation is that on the on the Republican side of our our body politic, there's more of more of a focus on punitive damages mm -hmm. specific to, hey, if you do something wrong, you deserve to be in prison. And there's some really valid arguments specific to San Francisco right now and the Los Angeles and Seattle and Portland because of these huge drug air markets that we have. I drive through it every day when I take my little boys to school. So it's something that is very present in my life. And what are your thoughts on the, is, 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 is the issue of, uh, of 
housing first part of the program? Mm -hmm. And if so, what do you what do you think about the housing first initiative when it comes to harm reduction? I think it's a crucial part of the puzzle. I mean, there there so I would say they're not um, there's really companion philosophies and yeah. uh, and housing first is a ton of literature behind it. I mean, it's one of those things like it's funny that, but we actually have community level trials, randomized control trials. So our highest level of, you know, quality of scientific evidence on the approach. And many of them found um, earlier ones were done, I believe in Chicago and across the U S and we actually did uh, one in Vancouver and Montreal called ours was called Chesua, which is French for at home. And I was also part of, part of that as well. And so our, um, the teams really found that if you gave people, uh, they looked at different scattered site housing models where people were uh, supported by a team and they looked at um, congregate settings where people were together. And again, both were really found to be effective to reduce, you know, corrections and prison experiences, reduce violence, reduce substance use. Again, um, people got jobs, like every really metrics that mm-hmm. you can find people do better when they have a roof over your head. Like if you've never been homeless, it's really hard to imagine, but you, how do you survive? Like you're, too, you're too filthy to go to a job interview, right. have a shower. You're scared, especially if you're a woman or a young yeah. person and you're, or you're racialized to sleep. So you start to use stimulants to stay awake because otherwise you might have experienced sexual assault or violence. Right. You are just going, and then you, then your, your brain's spinning out of control and you need down to calm you down. And you're just in this cycle and not every homeless person uses drugs, but a lot of people end up doing it partly because of the despair. And it's just, it can happen that, again, I feel that's something that can happen to anyone. You meet people, they have PhDs, they have, they're artists, they're very creative. Um, what many of them have in common is some element of trauma. And, mm-hmm. and we know from literature, when we, when we, when we talk to people, there often was a trauma of origin with people who have very, very severe and persistent substance use disorder and who are really living on the margins. And so that's, these people were, children at some point and whether it was something happened with a you know sports coach and that's rife in the world or something happened with a family member and so they often have this sort of sadness that they're trying to mask with substance that doesn't mean again everybody who uses substances has substance use disorder many people use it socially and so it's partly unpacking like what is causing these big you know, as, as someone that also lives in a city that struggles, I know it's frustrating for my neighbors and they think like, what is this open air drug market or am I safe doing this? And, and what we try and, and think through is there are solutions. And I think people sometimes think their city has implemented harm reduction, but again, I would say no one should implement it in isolation. Um, mm-hmm. in Canada, we often talk about the four pillars. Um, and that was something brought from the European experience as well. And so that's harm reduction prevention. So, you know, as a, as a parent myself as well, I don't, I don't want my 13 year old to, um, have access to prescription. Yeah. So I, I want him to know about drugs in a safe way, but I also want him to have access to good education. Treatment is the third pillar. And then the fourth pillar is enforcement. And I, I don't yeah. love enforcement. It's a little bit of a, it's an older concept, the four pillars. They were developed, you know, I want to say 10, 15 years ago. And I think you can sort of, I would replace that sort of with dignity and, um, elements of like good stewardship in your neighborhood. So an example I would give is when we opened Insight, um, 
we were we developed really good partnerships with local police and the local business association and our chinatown um and our neighbors in chinatown uh, lots of ethnic chinese community had very big concerns about the approach they came they had immigrated from china they felt like you know open drugs what this is a bad idea and we worked really care- carefully with those neighbors to say this will help clean up the street and users of insight we we um developed a peer model where they were involved in managing the chill themselves and they had some accountability hmm. and they swept the street they swept out needles and and kind of the founders of insight it wasn't my idea it was um uh, mark and liz the, the the great founders he was actually had come over from the uk but mark understood very well that if you did not show the neighbors the value of the model mm-hmm. that they wouldn't support it but also that people needed to learn I mean, what it meant to have dignity and be, be sort of reminded and people were appreciative. Like people don't want to be, um, undignified. Like it's a, right. such a foundation of life. And so it's, it's also about having those paid opportunities for people to get onto the job market ladder in a low barrier way. It's, it's about having everything together. And, and Portugal's often talked about as one of the leaders in that they had both harm reduction, they had safe supply, but they also had, if you wanted treatment and recovery, um, quite good access to that. And so I think you need the spectrum mm-hmm. housing to me and, and a good social thing. I think in the European models, it's hard for us as North Americans to sometimes imagine they, that's the strength of their social safety net at the time when they were implementing these trials was huge. And so there again, like people had a housing first approach because they had access to housing when they needed it. Correct. And and do you mention Portugal? Because Portugal and Amsterdam are often discussed, you know, in literature mm-hmm. as case studies that worked. And what I've noticed, and I'm a layperson in this, so I've done very little homework. No, no, no. I've I've probably spent, you know, 50 hours researching this conversation. And then obviously I spent a lot of time in and out of rehab centers and my little brother talking to caseworkers and asking them what their treatment systems were. And and over the last 20 years, those are the models. Portugal specifically um, talks about, and, and Amsterdam too, what they had in common was that they did have the housing first, but it wasn't necessarily permanent housing. It was mm-hmm. sheltered housing. And to your point, it was congregate housing. So they had additional people there, but they also had the police that checked in with them. Mm-hmm. And one of the pieces that I thought was weird and actually kind of neat because they admitted some of the difficulty was that in Amsterdam, they had difficulty actually getting the police to come on board with this harm reduction idea. And then once they got that across, then this duo, if you will, went out and did it together. But it wasn't just police. It was parole officers, caseworkers, social workers, psychologists, judges, employers. I mean, everyone kind of collectively came in, Mm -hmm. swooped in to help these people. And the police did shut down the open air drug scenes. That was part of it. They went around and said, hey, if if you were more than four or five, they broke you up. They didn't arrest you. They're like, guys, you can't do this as a group. You know, go find some place together or do it by yourself. They didn't issue, they didn't arrest them, but they give them tickets, right? And Mm -hmm. said, hey, you need to pay this fine for doing this. And a lot of times they didn't have the fine. And so they would get a warrant. And then when they got to trial or to in front of a magistrate, the the judge would say something to the effect of, hey, we know you're an addict. We want to help you. Therapy's mandatory. 
or jail. <laughs> that's where we sit. Now, that's, again, just a, a, a very brief analysis of those two areas, Portugal and Amsterdam. Do you guys do that in Vancouver? Do you, you know, kind of circle the, the wagons and get all these wonderful, you know, clinicians and experts and care workers together as a group and work with the individuals? Or is it, yeah? Yeah, we have something similar called drug courts. Um, yeah. So they're, yes. they're yeah, they're based a little bit on some, actually some, I think, uh, I think it might've been Seattle that we had learned from their model and a few others. Minnesota too, because my yeah. cousin, my cousin went through it and she sadly passed away after she got out of drug court. And she, when she graduated from drug court, she cried and told my cousin, my, my first cousin, um, that she wasn't going to make it mm-hmm. because she needed this help. Yeah. And she, she OD'd on a really bad, uh, it was fentanyl, you know, mm-hmm. um, six months later. So I have heard of drug courts and they're very similar. There's really not funded here in America, by the way. I mean, there there's prototypes, you know, throughout mm-hmm. the country, but they're very, very underfunded. And that's just gobsmacked when I read, because it seems to work. So I'm sorry to interrupt. What, tell me yeah. about I mean, I think one of the things certainly they there are pros and cons to to everything and i think as a as a as an interim measure they can certainly help change people's approach with criminalization and give them give them options and i i think everyone is so unique like i have colleagues and and friends who um had uh, experience with drug court that were really valuable and they felt like they needed that push. And I had, yeah. I've had patients, I, I worked at a place called Shiway that's um, really wonderful. That's a harm reduction approach for women who use drugs during pregnancy, which is a really, you know, complex group to support. Yeah. And, and I had some patients who would say, I'd say, Oh, you know, this, this physician is here today. Um, are you ready to see them? And they would say, Oh, that, that physician's too soft. Like I want to see the strict physician that's in tomorrow. <laughs> but okay. other, and you know, so they actually wanted someone that really kept them accountable and did the urine drug screens. and was really, they, they chose that and that's what they needed. But then I had the opposite sometimes like a very, um, traumatized woman that didn't connect with that particular style and would say, Oh, if if that physician's here, I'm going to wait for the other one that I want to see tomorrow. And both, both were valid. So I I think that people's recovery journey is so complex that you, you do need options, but in terms of drug court, I would say we're, what we're moving towards now is a new approach that we actually just introduced, I think two days ago for the, we're the first jurisdiction in Canada to um, officially decriminalize small levels of personal substance use so heroin cocaine etc and we did that and you know it's it's a bit of an experiment it was a um an, an agreement with our national government and, and and something that we asked to do because we wanted to understand what it would look like to remove that criminal element altogether so what the mm-hmm. police now will do in our jurisdiction is actually give they do they will continue to break people up and again keep that sense of neighborhood security and safety but they'll be giving people like referral cards to treatment this doesn't apply. I mean, it's, it's really about personal substance use. So it's a small amount. So it's sort of a, a crack right. in the window. But, but I think what the other thing to think about in, in, in other cities, like what you're describing is like, what would it look like? Like not just thinking about jail options, but what would it look like if you didn't have to congregate there? Cause the reason people congregate is because they're homeless. <laughs> so back to your housing first. And many of the shelters, San Francisco is not unlike my city, Vancouver, where these single room occupancy hotels were built. The history of those, of these inner cities, again, they were like low income workers. Some of the, mine was an opium den. The city put everything in that one area and 
they have no living room. They're not allowed to have guests. They're not allowed to have, a, you know, their friends over to have a beer in their room like you and I do, or middle-class people might do their cocaine in their living room. They don't have a living room. And so that's why they're congregating. And again, so it's sort of like, could we create safe spaces that are welcoming, that have the things that people need? Could they be, you know, you try to go in a coffee shop if you haven't had a chance to have a shower or you want to use the bathroom, you're turned away. Sure. It's unwelcoming lights you can't use inside. So we create all these barriers and then we're surprised that everyone's gathering outside. And it's like, is it, is drug court the solution or is welcoming neighborhoods and having it? You mentioned, um, I think that's a great point. What, what they did in Europe was everybody came along. And if you want to have a serious approach to controlling open air drug markets or concerns of safety of residents, like you need the businesses to be like, you know what, if someone wants to come and have a shower here, that's okay. Like you need private sector engaged. You need people to sort of shift their thinking and from othering people and being a bridge. And, and if an, if an employer start to change their approach to substance use, like I understand you have patterns where people are drug tested, um, as right. part of their work. And then again, what happens to that person? They lose their job. They become correct. Homeless. You're just kind of creating, furthering these the this attitude, and it, it's not really the drugs that are the problem. It's the criminalization and the othering and the lack of sort of thinking of it as oh, this is a trigger for help for this person. It's a good point. So just to share with you, because I interviewed my cousin about this, but her drug her drug court was two group meetings on substance each week once a week with a psychiatrist, one or two meetings with the police officer who came to her house, wow. which I thought was really cool. cool. Um, and they would just talk. He would just kind of see how she was living and how are you doing? And, you know, are you mm-hmm. feeling better this week? And then this allowed her to re-engage with her children, to connect with her mom and dad, her family, you know, all of that. And so it was really neat. And then obviously the the collateral positivity there is that she was then hired to work as a, a th- not a therapist, but a, someone inside the rehab center to, because she could relate, mm-hmm. right? And so she felt purpose again and so everything was going great. And she then paid taxes and she came, you know, she got back into mm-hmm. yeah. life, if you will. Mm-hmm. And then it ended, yeah. as I said, because they, like you graduated, you know, we need to move on. And then she was terrified. And that's, my brother was terrified every time he walked out of therapy. Mm-hmm. So I would pick him up sometimes after, and I don't, I'm not a big fan of 30 day programs because mm-hmm. they just don't work. Um, and it's not because I'm not trying, you know, the, the mm-hmm. compassionate lens on all of these people is everyone's trying, but it's one of those things where after decades of 28 day programs, having a 17% efficacy, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's one of those things we have to like, you know, that doesn't work. And mm-hmm. is it 30 days? Is it 60 days? It's 90 days. Doesn't really work either. It's actually kind of, I think the one thing that I've seen as far as a central thread of success is Portugal, Amsterdam, drug courts, because it is a collective mm-hmm. and it is less punitive. Yeah. Right. It's not like you screwed up, you're going to prison. It's, hey, we did a urinalysis and obviously we found drugs. So we need you to go back to therapy. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, what do you think about mandatory therapy as opposed to mandatory jail? Is Is there any benefit to that level of Mm-hmm. Uh, requirements or, you know, I don't want to say punitive, but some kind of consequence. 
I mean, I think the one thing I would say would be a first step before mandatory treatment um, is is a piece you haven't talked about, and I'm curious if your if your cousin or your brother experienced this is um, an interim step, would call it, which is opioid agonist therapy or substitution therapy. If it's a stimulant that they use, there's also stimulant substitution, and that's that's really where I think the evidence is pointing us towards, as opposed okay. to these residential programs. Certainly, some people have benefited, and I, I hate to discount them because I know some people feel um, that, you know, it really was life-changing and that's wonderful. But what happens when you go into a detox and then into a 30-day program is then you have a 30-day period of abstinence. And just physiologically, pure science, your body loses its tolerance for whatever of choices, which is for many people opioids in the case of overdose. And so you have this period of tolerance uh, um, where you now if you, if you have, if you, you know, relapse or decide to use substances again, which is really normal and common. Um, and you know what, I don't know, I drink coffee, I drink alcohol, like I use substances as well. And so it's just so common in modern society. And really it's quite an ancient practice for people to use substances to alter their consciousness of some time of some form. And so if you, you know, again, to like normalize substances, you, you, maybe you got something out of that bit of heroin, that you need because it soothes, soothes something for you. And what we know is people will get out of these detoxes and, and then they'll use their old dose and, they and they're done. That, yeah. And they pass away. And so yes. what, the, what the interim step is and what we prefer now and why we prefer even outpatients for, for that reason is a, is an agonist. So whether that's methadone, we have much more modern ones like Suboxone now with less side Suboxone was, yeah, my, my brother used that. And, and I, I remember. This was, you know, he died in 2007, so there's been a lot of good change since then. There's injectable options, which you can use. Like if some of the injectables are quite harsh and that if you take take it, you feel sick. But again, I'm, I'm a big fan of patient choice. And if the patient's like, I want that, I want the more stronger control on me. And some will choose some of the injectable options that again, make them sick. And others will say, I'm not, a, I don't want that. I want the oral. Yeah. And so making these really low barrier and accessible and again, free, like many people can't afford them. They should be freely available. They should be something that people have access to. There are options now for stimulant users. Many stimulant users have ADHD and it's undiagnosed. And again, like an Adderall prescription can be life-changing for them. And yeah. for people spent their use, you know, looking for a high because they were actually, that helps them think. So underneath every substance use is often a very smart idea. Most people who use drugs are actually yeah. smart and they're trying to get either their brain to a function level because they're neurodivergent or they're, they're trying to quiet something in their mind. Or if you're a heroin user and you're dope sick, it's actually like really painful Right. And it hurts and you're throwing up and you have diarrhea. And so is it really that crazy that you are going to get a, an, another injection that will stop that feeling? It's actually quite rational. And so if we can give people this these substitution therapies, again, that are prescription, it's life-changing and it prevents overdose because, again, they can't overdose when they're on many of these because some of them have actually some naloxone built into them. Again, and, mm. and more for people who don't are interested in that, that's when you can go to sort of the prescription heroin, which we get from Europe again. And you take out the fentanyl, which is a toxic, um, you know, made in a lab. It's a, yeah. it's a pollutant. It's now in opioids. It's now in some of people's um, benzodiazepines. The market is tainted. And so you have to kind of tackle this in a multi-pronged way. 
But for me, that's, that's a better solution than often forcing people down where you, where I often see the system in other cities and it confuses me is like, they're going to the drug court, which is really expensive, or they're going to these big treatment models, but they still haven't enabled the foundation, which is really housing and, and outpatient, um, effective evidence-based substance use treatment. And, and I was really lucky to do my addictions medicine fellowship at, at our BC center for substance use. And part of that that group's purpose is to help train providers because we don't get training in addiction in, in most medical schools and nursing schools, hmm. in social work schools. Like this should be something that every family physician can prescribe. We have nurse prescribing now. It should be free. And that's what really helps um, create that layer. So if you come in to emerge for pain, you know, that the physician should be able to help you because that can be a gateway. Or if you encounter an officer in the street, they should be able to refer you. And, and it doesn't, it's so much cheaper because it's not residential. And the other thing I like about outpatient treatment is it's not taking you out of your environment. So you don't have this, like I was yeah. in this overly safe container and now I'm really, yeah. Yeah, you actually that's a stay in your case. community. And if you're yeah. a parent, you maybe you still, if you're a mother, you, you don't have to put your children into foster care, which you may never get back. You right. can like, they can go to school. You can go to your outpatient daytime counseling because counseling is important. The roots of everything is important, but often in these like very expensive, I see families mortgage their houses. Um, and what actually is needed is like peers. You talked about the power of peers and for your cousin, the power and that she felt when she had the opportunity to give back. That's huge. Mm -hmm. It is. Like, volunteering is at one point, the trial that I was working on for heroin, um, they asked us to stop. We were letting the participants or not letting, but at the participants request, they wanted to give back and they wanted to help. And so we had to amend the trial protocol in order so that they could work as peers in the thing. And, and the, I think at one point ethics wrote back like, oh no, you can't have them involved in cleaning the space because it's polluting the effect of the actual drug, which was your original research question. But we just had to push back because we just saw, like we couldn't take away, there was some, a participant who wanted to sweep and that actually gave him like the step on the ladder. He was like, now I'm going to get a cleaning job. And right. I think it's just so much more complicated than the drug. And, and all of this is, if, if someone's struggling to support someone, I would just say, like the tough love and the rock bottom rarely works. And it's about getting them into a new environment. Um, and getting Yeah. I, I just anecdotally, I, I can't, I tried the tough love once with Stevie, my little brother, and, and he went to jail for six months. And I said, dude, I'm not talking to you for mm -hmm. six months. I'm just not, I'm not going to visit you. I'm not going to write you. And he wrote me these hilarious letters, which I still have. <laughs> He's like, Hey, ass face. I know you're not talking to me, but I love you. And you know, I'm in, blah, blah, blah. And it didn't work. And I, the neat thing was, is when the last week of his life, he was here with me in San Francisco and he had been clean for three and a half months. And to your point, this is what happened is that he, we took him down to a rehab center and talked with a couple of the counselors. And I said, you know, I would really like my little brother to be here, uh, as, as in whatever capacity, if he can help people talk, if he can help just because he's been here and done that. And they loved him. He was very charismatic and he was very, he had a big heart and he loved people and he suffered. So he, he, he really understood the pain other people were going through. And so we left that center and I was like, buddy, you're going to be great here. You know, it, and he's, he wanted us to come back in three months. He wanted us to make sure he was clean and, and all of that. And he passed away about five days later. And it was heartbreaking because it was exactly that his body had let go of some of the 
uh, ability to absorb the amount of drugs and alcohol that he shoved down his gullet. And it was just too much, you know, and, and so he died. And it was one of those things where the, the, this is again, my bias. And this is why I'm, you know, so in love with these programs, but let me just throw some of the statistics out that I hit, I get from my conservative friends mm-hmm. from 2005 to 20, 2020, San Francisco experienced an astonishing 95% increase in unsheltered homelessness as the number of permanent supportive housing offered by the city rose from 6,000 to 10,000. San Francisco has the greatest number of permanent supporting houses per capita of any major city in the U.S. It has 11 permanent supportive housing units per thousand people, which is nearly three times as much as New York City. Mm-hmm. And we have 93% of the people in our community of that 8,000 are have mental illness, 80% use cocaine, speed, or heroin, or get drunk to the point of unconsciousness. And so we, in our city, in 2001, we used to give away stipend to these folks of $395 a month. Today, we give $687 a month, $200 in in food stamps, and it has become somewhat of a, a beacon for other addicts to come here and get the money get a place to live, get the drugs, the, the clean pipes, the clean needles, yeah. and all of that. What is your response to that level of pushback from our politicians here mm-hmm. in San Francisco, as well as Portland, Seattle, and Los Angeles, is that we're not, what's do, what we're doing is not working, <laughs> right? It's actually getting yeah. worse. And yeah. so and if these... What 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 is the response? Because I don't have. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, and it's a great question, and I think, you know, I I, I can't speak for for San Francisco because no, it's not my right. jurisdiction. But I, we have I, I live and know intimately a very similar city. So Vancouver okay. has a lot in common with San Francisco. It's the warmest city um, in Canada. You can sleep outside year round. Uh, we again we're a temperate rainforest, and you're a little warmer than us, but not much. Right. And um, we also have the, the, you know, we, we are, we face very similar criticisms and certainly have lots of colleagues there. So I know a bit <laughs> about what you go through. And yeah. the, the thing is also, you have to situate every city in their historical context. Like San Francisco, we're a port city in Vancouver. So again, we're a gateway to drugs, which again is geography. Like some of it is. Yeah. Partly luck for many of the cities you mentioned, Seattle's not too dissimilar and others. It's like the climate, the geography, all those things and our histories. We, I can speak to my city and, um, our colonial history with indigenous people, you know, white settlers came here, um, very brutal treatment. Many people in British Columbia put into these residential schools, lots of trauma, lots of sexual abuse. This, these ended in 1986. So not unlike the racialized experiences that black Americans have in your cities. Again, you'll see like people overrepresented from ethnic minorities and no question in these things because they're, you know, part of it is a legacy of white supremacy and colonization. And so these are all intertwined. You can't sort of take that context out of it. And so in, in our inner city, you'll see a real overrepresentation of indigenous Canadians that are there from, from, uh, with really the after effects of colonization in my okay. city. So those are some of the big things I say, again, it's not, it's not about like, part of it is the luck of the city. And then again, it's doing things in half measures. Like you mentioned, um, yeah. 687 per month and 390, 200 in food stamps. Well, I've been to San Francisco. I don't think that gets you very far. And so again, 
and what is a drop in a bucket and versus an actual universal basic income. That's something that's often used in Europe. Lots of research on that. If people don't have to hustle and they can, you know, have a roof over their heads and they don't have to steal, what would that look like? And that's, that's very different than giving people a tiny bit of money, which is what we do as well. By the way, we give people, okay. we are one of the, we are after, I think San Francisco, the most expensive housing market in North America. There is not a house single family home here for under a million and a half dollars. Rent is a minimum 3000 a month. And I think we give people like, I don't know, $800 or something like you just simply right. can't if, and if you have a criminal record, which is another reason I have concerns sometimes around drug courts, it's like, yes, you might be able to get a peer job, but where, where are you going to go to next? If you have a criminal record, most places that you cannot get employment, can't even get employment as no. cleaner. Like it's a real, it really sets you up for this, like knock you down again and again. So now you've got a criminal record. What else can you do other than deal or be involved in survival sex work right. or petty crime? And so you, you sort of, See these patterns. And so what would it look like if we took the four pillars? And I'll go back to those. And, yeah. and that's maybe something for whether you're a, a conservative or a Democrat, like, again, many parties can agree, you need, you need not just one thing, like you need to address people's basic human needs to survive. And that's kind of some of the harm reduction, you need to keep those people alive. So you need harm yeah. reduction, you need to have safe spaces, get them out of the cold. You need prevention because you want to stop people entering the system as youth and yeah. that's education and you need treatment. I, I'm yeah. not sure how your treatment access is, but I'm imagining probably it's, it's lacking free. Like again, it needs to be free, accessible and available. And then you need this enforcement or, or more dignified way for people to be and, and streets need to be, people need to feel safe in their communities. And mm -hmm. I go back to like, it's not always popular in my movement and, this could kind of get clipped out of context. So it's, it's almost hard to talk about, but you, I learned from the old school harm reductionists that I was trained under that came from Liverpool. Again, that came from um, the European Swiss uh, heroin trial models. The Swiss talked about this. I've been to Switzerland. I've been to Portugal. Portuguese talk about it. It's like having, not having the open needles everywhere. Like you need to show the community that when their children go to the playground, they're not accidentally, accidentally going to get pricked with a needle. You need to be picking the needles up. And people who use drugs don't want to accidentally infect a child or have, no. you know, something. They, they don't want that either. So there needs to be boxes for them. They need to be empowered to recover the needles. You need to give them needle sticks and give them peer jobs to do that. And so it's partly having, having that as a package. And many cities have just done one or the other. And I, and I don't know as much about the harm reduction model in San Fran, but I know that, you know, people will cherry pick, um, data and For like, sure. yeah. and it's, it's possible that, you know, I don't know what you need to know what the burden of, maybe you have the most social housing, but is it accessible? Do you have to be clean to be in some of that? Cause again, then you can't actually enter it. That's, that's, I see this all the time with domestic violence shelters, women trying to flee, um, and, you know, trans folks trying to flee, uh, violence and they're, they're not allowed, they've used substances to cope with that violence and, right. and it's a barrier to entry. And so then their children and them just have to have to live in this situation. And it's, it's not as these shelters are also like, not all they're cracked up to be, you know, not all of them are run with dignity at their core. I think the best ones, you know, some of them you're forced to pray if you're 
Muslim and you have to do pray in a Christian shelter? How does that fit with your core beliefs? Some of them you have to line up for hours. Many of them you can't have the same bed each night. And so they're, they're just, again, these chips away at your dignity and they're doing the best they can. And they've set up, you know, sometimes procedures because they're underfunded and undersupported, but they're not, they're not like, Oh wow. It's just so great to sleep in a shelter every night. Um, yeah, that that's the big argument here, um, specific to shelters versus permanent housing, because a lot of this, Jennifer, I think her, yeah, Friedenbach, who's the executive director of the San Francisco Coalition of Homeless, is a huge housing first yeah. advocate. And I think for that reason, similar to that, I did a bunch of reporting on defund the police um, over the last year. And so I interviewed a lot of beat cops um, in San Francisco and Santa Rosa, uh, which is a big city north of here. And we, a lot of the, and these are, again, this maybe qualitative research versus quantitative in that aspect, but maybe I talked to 20 officers and specifically here in San Francisco, I would ask them about the open air drug market in the Tenderloin, which is our, our biggest area of problem. And we have, I think it's about 80% of our overdoses come from that one concentrated area. And I know you are aware of concentration issues uh-huh. when it comes to city, but we had in that area. So if you look at like Phoenix, Chicago, Seattle, there were 23 per hundred in Seattle, 46 per hundred out of Phoenix, 48 in Chicago and 81 out of 100,000 here in San Francisco on overdoses. So our overdoses have gone through the roof over the last 10 years based on the policies. And to your earlier question, there are no requirements at all for sheltered housing or permanent housing. And that fits with your model because that way you don't have to, they don't feel lack of dignity. They don't worry about being kicked out based on drug use, which is the only way they're coping. The counter argument to that is that if you allow, and my brother and his buddies used to joke about this, is that they they gave me a stipend. They gave me a place to do the drugs. They gave me a clean pipe mm-hmm. and they gave me money. What do they think I'm going to do? Mm-hmm. Right. So that, you know, when he was sober, he'd make jokes like that. And I'd say, well, you know, obviously that's not the reason for the, for all of that, but that begs the question specifically to, is there, because I like what you're talking about specifically of getting them off the detox. So the first is let's detox them so that they don't, or so they can actually use drugs to stay clean drugs to get better and start to do you do you wean them by the way is that something that happens yeah so what often i mean different people need different things but the first yeah. when people come in is yeah starting them on a titration so they're yes. depending on the if it's about word <laughs> so we titrate people to the right level and sometimes people you know are a little more sleepy and it's they maybe are in a stage where they need that and that you'll sometimes still see people seeming in the zone and then they'll start to feel better. And it's like, okay, I actually want to work and I feel too sleepy. Yeah. I work in construction. I need to be able to drive a forklift. And so you start to, okay, um, you know, get down to a level where they can really function. And, um, you know, you, I don't know, do you have overdose prevention sites or sub, uh, supervised consumption sites? We do. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's also criticized in the sense yeah. that, oh, you're just giving people drugs. And these are just people yeah. that, you know, the average person's not aware mm-hmm. of these very complex problems. Right. So I understand because we had billboards here that, you know, took a bunch of crap from people because the billboards actually said something to the effect of, you know, do not use alone. 
go find your friends and do your drugs together. You know, and I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. Um, do not inject anymore if there's a higher level of overdose. So smoke or mm-hmm. yeah. um, inhale, whatever it may be. And so these were billboards that were put up for that exact purpose in that neighborhood mm-hmm. because we were losing a lot of people that were yeah. doing drugs alone. And that's one of those things where if you titrate the person, it gets to a point where they can then bring back some clarity of thought. Mm -hmm. They start to work again. You get them down to either a level of very minimal drug use or off all drugs. And at that point, is there ever a good idea for some level of responsibility or in a requirement, if you will. So like, that's the one yeah. thing that I, I read within Portugal and Amsterdam is that they did, they said that was a really big thing. And a lot of the patients that they talked to were like, I did need to get pushed. I really didn't want to go to jail. I was, I felt shame all the time. So they didn't make me feel shame. But once I got clean, if I, you know, because the drug courts do that, right? They they mm-hmm. do a urinalysis. They do meet with cops. They do meet with, so where is that? Where does that happen for you as a clinician? Where do you see that most effective um, as an efficacy to get people to the point where they're clean? And then if they do fall off, they're not put in prison, but they are mandated. Hey, no, no, no. <laughs> We're not going to mm-hmm. let you go down that path again. You need to come back and you need to go to therapy for X amount of time. Like, where does that, where is that line for you as a clinician? Do you, is there a yeah, I think it certainly, I mean, I've looked a bit to the literature, but also my own um, experience. And there's there's really, literature is mixed, but yeah. what we know doesn't work is like very shame, Correct. Um, very heavy punitive models that force, you know, like the, you know, uh, kid, the, we think of it as kidnapping, but this sort of force, like grabbing someone and taking, like, again, humiliating them at their workplace. You know, these, they see them on TV sometimes, these big interventions. And uh, again, that's quite traumatizing. Like yeah. when we interview um, youth who've been through that afterwards, you know, it's, it's, it's very traumatizing. And then again, that's just tra- building trauma on trauma. You talked about your brother yeah. in jail, you know, the, the violence people experience in jail. It's a very violent act, like force someone into treatment. So I'm, the literature is, is pretty clear that generally that backfires and it might okay. work for a six months a year but often those those kids will go on to die and what it what it drives them away is drives them away from their support system and so again like then they turn away from their parents and their family and those those become not a safe space and so what you want is for people to be able to have open honest conversations about their substance use and their relapse again if you reframe it all like what's causing people to overdose part of it is the the get the black market and the gangsterism and the fact that there's yeah. tainted drugs there. So if you, and I guess for me, like the, the concept of clean people use it often, it really depends. Everyone's different, but I've found a way to continue to use substances, whether it be alcohol, caffeine, maybe stimulants occasionally as someone who also has ADHD and, you know, but my, the stimulant I have access to when I need to write a paper is a prescription stimulant. And I'm right. where as a youth, I used to probably seek out, you know, cocaine because right. I was looking for that same effect. But now right. I can have that discussion with my physician, I have a diagnosis and I don't take, 
ADHD medicine all the time. But if I need to focus and do a period of writing, I have access to that. And I'm not worried. My husband's not going to find me one night as a former cocaine user, like come home and find me not well. And that, right. that's sort of the difference. Like if the, I, what I question, cause humans have used mind altering substances at the beginning of time. Yes. <laughs> so why are we trying to force people to never use them? You know, like the Romans write about it. If you've ever used, you know, many people in the summit community that we talk about use yes. um, psychedelic ayahuasca, yes. ayahuasca. And this is like, if you're middle class and you can afford to go to the jungle, that's okay. <laughs> but it's yeah. not okay for other people yeah. to want to use different things. And everyone's body's different. And some people like an opioid just chills them out and relaxes them. It, and many of the the things that we think of are bad don't make sense. Like alcohol is a known carcinogen. It's yeah. cancer causing. If we regulated drugs based on their true harm, we would have a very different um, approach. And so what yeah. many harm reductionists believe is that we need a public health approach grounded in evidence to substances. And that actually, if you really unpack, a lot of it is stigma. And would people need these forced treatments if you had a destigmatizing? But I do agree with you. Clinically, I've seen some people say, I really like some accountability. So what I do in my practice and some sites, we say, do you think it would be helpful for you to have urine drug screens. And we tried to have a consent-based approach to it. And some people say, yeah, you know what? I think that would actually help me like stay on top of myself. Just like yeah. with my PhD supervisor, I said, I need a meeting with you every two weeks because I'm a procrastinator. And it would be helpful <laughs> if you are looking over my shoulder. Yeah, you're behind. Different. Yeah, okay. I think that's different than forcing someone or kidnapping them or forcing them to do something. And again, having these consent-based conversations with patients and family members around, hey, I'm going to check in on you. Like you can even do that with your friends, but in having a, when people get this in and out of rehab and tons of expectation on them, then they mm -hmm. hide and that's when they die because then yeah. they're, they're so scared and everyone thinks that it's perfect. And that's, that's the reflection of the friends I've lost. I've lost many friends and many colleagues and, um, we have, we do have one of, but we also like is San Francisco's issue and the overdoses they're having the result of some of these policies or it's bigger than that. Like geog we also have more toxic drug supplies on the West coast because we are the gateway. COVID didn't do us any favors. It made the supply more toxic. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes on other, other parts of the country, you'll have different supplies. And it's sort of just, it's not something that one mayor or council can be held responsible for. It's because we're trying to live in this, you know, um, black market gangster culture where that's where people have to get their drugs. And and what would it look like if, if there was a safe community center where the tenderloin is that was big enough and nice enough and, there was jobs for everybody that wanted one or everybody that I very much doubt that if you were like, I'd like detox today, you can get mm -hmm. free high quality evidence-based entry immediately. Maybe you can. And I'm, you don't have, we don't have that in my city. Like it's still several months. You, if you, you know, want a stay in residential, which can sometimes be helpful just to help clear and, you know, um, get you onto the OAT and do the titration as an inpatient that, that right work and then go into back into the outpatient model. We just don't have, we haven't actually used the model and we're cherry picking and saying, Oh, they're doing this and they're doing that. But actually, you know, so that's, that's a great way of looking at it because like 
individually, there's a guy named Del Seymour who used to be a pimp mm-hmm. here in San Francisco. And he's, I've invited him on the show three times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hasn't accepted my invite yet, but he's been chronicled in the New York Times and the San Francisco Chronicle. He's just a mensch, just a really good dude. And he actually set up a program to teach homeless people how to code. And the reason for that is that they can code from anywhere. They don't have to smell good. They don't have to look good. They just have to work. And that gives them purpose and and dignity and all of those things. But to your point, and this is kind of where I think we have to figure this out collectively. When you say we're not doing it right, this is collective. We're not doing it right. So Vancouver's doing pieces and parts. San Francisco's doing pieces and parts. Um, And maybe we can just say that the, the ones that did it as a collective, Portugal and Amsterdam, right? It worked. Yep. It did it nationally and they funded it and they campaign. And again, when you do it piecemeal, I think you're not wrong that sometimes people come, but people also send, and, and there's evidence around this. I mean, from other jurisdictions, they will send people who are homeless on bus tickets from more conservative jurisdictions to our city, partly because they can sleep outside and it's like a way to get out of their jurisdiction, get them out of their hair. And, you know, when you have not enough nationally, but just enough to be a beacon, it can be a challenge. So you, you really need the other jurisdictions to set up and to to sort of step up and be um, bringing some of the innovation that other cities are doing. And it needs to be a national response. I mean, Portugal is a pretty small country and, um, it is a chance to see uh, some of their streams that I went to their drug court. So we, uh, that we had the, actually the international harm reduction conference there. And I've, I've met with some of the judges and some of the residents I've seen, seen the models and um, you know, they, they did it on a national scale and they educated families and they brought mm-hmm. people along. And that, that same thing happened in Switzerland during the heroin trials and, People yeah. understood, people saw the benefit of it because they saw reduced crime in their neighborhood. They saw um, people returning to their loved ones. and But they also were in a different time with less toxic drugs. So what they were mainly working That's with a big, was, good point. was heroin. And heroin easier. is pretty easy. Like, <laughs> yeah. It is. It no, is. That's it. I read a paper on that exactly. And, and it would said exactly that. It was that it was a different time. That it was heroin and heroin is was it subsidones or what is the um methadone or methadone uh, subs yeah there so you can re, you can replace that with purity yeah and you can titrate them to your point yeah. and then they can actually get better whereas yeah. with with fentanyl and all of these toxic drugs that are being passed around today it's instant death very sick brain damage you're not getting better yeah and so that's a great because that the I obviously to, to <laughs> try to get to like what is missing? What are we getting wrong? What we're getting wrong as a collective, and this is North America in general, mm-hmm. is that we have more kids today anxious and depressed. Mm-hmm. We have more homeless in the major cities that I've talked about already. We do not have a collective national attention or remedy budget-wise. And to your point, that happens all the time to mm-hmm. LA, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle. It is in part due to the weather. Mm -hmm. right? Minnesota, where I grew up, there's not as many homeless people because it's, you know, right now 10 below zero, very difficult to be there. So if you can get to a warmer state, Vancouver obviously has the same issue. Mm -hmm. So the, the, it's getting worse everywhere. And that's what scares me to death for all these young kids is that they are using more drugs with less 
safety. Like they, they're actually, they have no idea what they're ingesting. Their natural experimentation is actually could kill them, which terrifies Yeah, and right, the prefrontal the mother not develop it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're just, they make bad decisions until the, <laughs> the prefrontal cortex yeah. grows to an adult. And I have an 11 and nine-year-old little boy. And I'll tell you the only good thing about the tenderloin is that I drive through it mm-hmm. to and from school every day and they see it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I let them know, guys, you know, my oldest is going to go to junior high next year. And I said, hey, there's going to be guys that want to do drugs next year. You're, you're going to see it in mm-hmm. school and they're going to offer you drugs. Just look at this, dude. Mm-hmm. This is it. This is what happens. And I said, and you, you don't know, you know, my family, my, my brother and my father, and there's other people that were addicted. And, and I said, you know, you, you guys, there's good and bad with being a Dumont. You know, you mm-hmm. have some good lineage and you have some bad mm-hmm. lineage. And the last thing you want to do is experiment to see if you two are an addict like your mm-hmm. uncle Stevie. Mm-hmm. So just no is the only answer. You know, it's like, this is what happens. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think that, cause I would just be curious with you guys in your, specifically your, like your academic life, mm-hmm. is that something you guys are talking about at the national scale? I mean, you guys had Justin Trudeau. So mm-hmm. you want to talk about someone who has a, very big heart and really wants to help. Are you guys doing this nationally? Because I don't see a lot. I, think, <laughs> I don't see a lot of chance for that for us. But can are you guys doing it? Yeah, and I and I mean I think there's there is certainly always hope. And um, you know you have NIDA, the National Addictions Office, and and there's a lot of evidence we take from from U.S. jurisdictions. And Carl Hart is someone. If you don't know Carl, he's yeah. a fantastic um, scientist that we follow a lot and was also has a former history um, as someone that used substances and then became professor at Columbia. And, and he writes a lot about the power of community and, and how he's great. Yeah. yeah. How you can kind of move on. But I think there's lots of reason to have hope at the same time. And, and one of the other things, um, you know, we talked about San Francisco's weather and our, and our, um, then there's some papers on this of the things we have in common. The other thing that we have in common is extreme housing prices. So again, all of these yeah. policy instruments are yeah. huge. And that means like maybe in other jurisdictions, there are more like lower middle class and middle class people that can, that are not taking the housing away from the very low barrier because it's just impossible. And so that's what creates homelessness is these really disparate out of control housing markets. So I think yeah. both provincially and federally, we're really trying to tackle that because we see that as a root cause of a lot of the, even anxiety and homelessness, like being constantly evicted when house, houses become a commodity like that, people are constantly evicted. And, and then it's the impacts of the pandemic and working on a sort mm-hmm. of build back better approach where we, we understand the impacts of children on children and youth of these sort of times away from school and the anxiety they faced. And then how do we get enough dosage? Cause you can't just have these little pilot programs here and there. Like you have to have on demand access to free counseling, free, uh, whether that's virtual or not. And, you know, if medications needed, you know, you needed a silent, so you need a, a national pharma care plan, which yep. is something we are nationally working on so that you if guys you guys are, Okay. Yeah, that's that's one of the planks of of the upcoming, and that's an election promise that they made recently, and, and a plank they're looking at, and then definitely is a national um, drug strategy and a, a housing strategy, and you know budgets are tight everywhere around the world post COVID, and uh, many many jurisdictions went into deficit, but it's like not cheaping out on these things that will actually be the foundation and bedrock of better health for all, and that's you know addiction is a complicated thing, but what's 
what, again, I, I keep going back to is the little things you can do, whether you're supporting a loved one or a colleague or you're a policymaker, you can treat people with dignity. You can be a safe space for your loved one. You can build community. You can employ people. Like if you're an employer and you're in a private sector, you can remove the mandatory urine drug screens. Cause do you really care that your employee used cocaine on a Saturday night at their house? Why is that your business? Mm-hmm. And you can rem- you can remove restrictions that you might have had about people having criminal charges. Like collectively, there's so much human rights work again that you can do even as as an employer or a community builder you can make your business welcoming to people take out the black lights give people a cup of coffee smile like walking past and smiling and saying hello i do it every time i walk past a homeless person um i often will give a bit of change because if they use it to buy some drugs i don't have a judgment on that and that it's amazing how happy they are and they just say hey brother hey sister Mm-hmm. Friend. And people are like, stop shocked because even in a compassionate, like think we have a compassionate city, they just, nobody looks them in the eye. No. And, and so there's just so many little things that if as a society, we can reduce our stigma towards people who use drugs. And then that allows, whether you're conservative or Democrat or whatever your political stripes are to agree, like we've all been touched by addiction in our families. And how can it be? that sort of fear and mistrust and anger is the answer. And, and libertarians get this libertarians, many if they're conservative libertarians are like, we don't want government intervention in our, whether it's our guns or our houses, but why do you want them in your substances and what you're putting up your nose? So I, I often wonder when very conservative friends are, they often are like trying to make these punitive drug policy or they're not supporting harm reduction. And I'm like, well, if you look at your core values, people should have the liberty to use what they want. And so um, we'll often help build alliances in the harm reduction and drug policy movement, the public health drug policy movement with, with those conservative, we worked really hard to work with um, conservative politicians. You know, we had Stephen Harper here as a conservative prime minister for many years, and we, you know, give them tours of the sites and explain the model I mentioned our the bridges we built with the Chinese community in our in uh because our our tenderloin equivalent, which is called the downtown side, is also just next to Chinatown. And you know, they had legitimate concerns about safety and when we could bring them in, they've been some of our best champions and and those alliances across um different communities are crucial for the success of a of a really an evidence-based public health approach to drugs. And so as a group, Canada is trying this national approach, budgetary-wise or not? I'd say there's a ways to go. We have, like you, different um, governments in power. You have states, we have provinces, mm-hmm. and we have some very um, different political views across the provinces. Um, and that can sometimes lead to sort of rapid changes and flip-flops in policy. So where we had... Um, made some ground you know you go backwards often in the movement that happens so it's it's certainly not perfect here but i think the decriminalization bill that came through uh, as i mentioned a couple days ago is is sort of the first time we're looking at what would it look like to remove this criminal element that we know creates so so much trauma from the equation and and bc is moving forward as a pilot with that and i think that's going to be really interesting we're all very open to say hey we want to evaluate it we we're explicitly looking at what might be some of the unintended harms um and it would be brilliant if there was a a north american approach because we know that the drugs move between borders and Mm -hmm. and that you know again we don't want to be a draw 
um, from one to another. So it's, it's, it is much better if, if nationally there can be conversations about, about stigma towards drug user, drug yeah. use and towards compassionate approaches. Two things there, and then I can, I'll let you go. And I appreciate your time again. I interviewed a, a, a police officer yesterday uh, about this topic. And I asked him, who's someone who spent a lot of time on the street as a beat cop. And then he, he retired as a lieutenant and he's a, someone that I go to often to mm -hmm. ask him questions about this kind of stuff. And I said, buddy, what do you think is the remedy here? Because, and you know, he's a former cop. So he said, you know, I agree with you that we can't put people in jail and drugs mm -hmm. right away, but there has to be a limit, you know, mm -hmm. after a certain amount of time and a certain amount of offenses, <laughs> you know, two, three, four, you know, give a, but, but he said the problem is because he spent so much time as a cop. He said, jail is awful. Mm -hmm. It will wreck them. Mm -hmm. Prison's worse. <laughs> so that's the issue with the punitive, mm -hmm. you know, state of mind. What he said, and I don't know if you guys are doing this because we're not, is that we have to figure out a way to incarcerate addicts only. And I don't know if that looks like, because in Norway, they don't, it's not a prison prison. Mm -hmm. It's like a work situation. There's no barbed wire and there's, mm -hmm. you know, people are learning how to do a job, whether it's automotive or carpentry or whatever it may be. And these, that's kind of what he was. And I was like, that's a really good idea because it's that way it, it you can, oh, hey, you go to therapy or you go to this work camp. And the work camp itself is where you, you need to remain clean, but you're going to be trained on how to do these things. And you're not going to be housed with, you know, sexual predators and murderers and people mm -hmm. that are violent, right? You're going to be with other folks who are dealing with the same plight, which is in this case, addiction, substance abuse, self-loathing, you know, all the things that we all know. Um, are you guys doing anything on that front in Vancouver in the sense of trying to get your jails and prisons cleaned up to some degree mm -hmm. and or work on some level of like a Norway type treatment center where you're actually sending your addicts uh, to a place of comfort to get better? Certainly we do have some recovery communities are sometimes called or therapeutic okay. centers. And, and um, Italy also has some really best practices in this area. And I, I have to follow up with the name of it, but there's, there's a model around, yeah, work. Um, so in we Italy? have, yeah, in Italy, Check that out. But there's, we have some communities like that, like our Redfish Healing Center is like that used to be um, essentially a notorious, very traumatizing um, place called Riverview that was our mental health sort of warehousing facility. And um, it was a secure facility, but there was a lot of bad things that happened there. And there was a policy decision to completely abandon that approach. And they actually, in the 80s, um, let everyone free when they when the abuse came out. And oh, then there was too. a bunch of people with a really <laughs> profound and persistent, very serious mental health challenges. And then they, yeah. in our version of the Tenderloin, which is the downtown east side. So again, these are like bad policy decisions that had unintended consequences and that we still live with today. And, and instead some, some in consultation with family members and in consultation with even sometimes people affected, they need a very secure living environment that may be acquired brain injury, maybe All which right. again, we're seeing more and more with repeated non-fatal overdoses. And some of those people do benefit from these very 
um, intensive therapeutic environments. And it may be for a period of time for their brain to heal and, and it may be permanently. And so we, we need right. again to have those spaces for people. Many people talk about having connection to land. So we have a lot of land-based healing. So our indigenous, we will, I shouldn't say we have a lot. We have some, some very interesting and we need more land-based healing environments. And that's particularly for indigenous people to reconnect with culture led by elders. They do sweat, they do um, like living off the land, hunting, fishing, like nature okay. skills. Yeah. And they get yeah. back to nature. They learn to connect with their culture and primarily there have a period, that period of abstinence while they're there. And these are very possible, um, uh, strong evidence behind many of these interventions. And so that I think there's, there's a lot we could learn from those. Again, people farming, all of those are mm-hmm. quite well established in the literature as like just reconnecting. We have inner city farms and often as a, as a nurse, it's like the first thing I do is not figure out how to get you clean. I'm like, how can I get you connected? Is it mm-hmm. volunteering? So I was a street nurse for many years and worked outreach. So similar to beat cop, but you know, my tools were not handcuffs. They were, you know, my phone. And I was yeah. just basically connecting people. Sometimes I, I drew blood for, I was also helping people if they had HIV and was getting people onto medications and giving people treatments and you know, dressing wounds. And so I, I just had a big bag. It said street nurse and you walk what in the dentist said our version of the tenderloin. And you, you learn a lot from doing that. And again, what, people ask me for help it, it, and it often was wanting to reconnect with family, like helping people make a phone call, find their kids and then getting them a safe a place to stay. And then once they mm-hmm. when they come to see you in the office, it's like, how can we get you volunteering? How can we get you connected to land? How can we get you working at inner city farm? How can we get you yoga? Like how come only middle-class people get yoga? <laughs> right. right. Again, it's like, how do we spread out these interventions that we know work and my personal perspective is that like having a clean urine drug screen is not necessarily the the most important part. It's like, did you have these visits with your family? Did you reconnect with your daughter? You haven't, you've lost touch with, did you call your lawyer to get access? Like those are more steps on the healing journey and, and then making sure that if they do have a slip up, that they're not alone, that there's no lock zone and that there's, that things that can revive them or that ideally they had a baseline of an OAT so that it didn't even happen. And those are all tools that again, you don't need this like clean, not clean binary. Yeah. Or like, did you get your life back? And, and even for my own kids, I mean, it's terrifying. We have one of the um, highest overdose rates because of the toxicity of our supply. And my oldest is in his twenties and my youngest is 13. And, you know, I, since he was really since they were in early teens, I taught my, my son when he was, I think 15 to use naloxone and to how to revive someone. And I did it as, Hey, in case you're at a party Mm. and this happens, you can save a life. But that was also an entry to having that conversation. And I didn't necessarily want to say like, or in case you use drugs, but because I'm like, I, my hope is you won't. I also had the same conversations. Like friends in our family, there is biological elements to that sometimes Mm -hmm. that are genetic. And, um, but having clear, you know, conversations and open conversations about how experimentation is is somewhat normal, but that this is the this is the risk in this current climate, and if you're at a party and this happens, and so he carries it with him and he has it in his car, and he's had to revive people in his work. He has, and film, wow. not, not friends, but 
I mean, I think he was at a workshop with some, a teacher and the teacher didn't know how to do it. And he took over and taught the class. And like, those are things as a mom that, that make me really proud and that yeah. he has the tools um, he needs. And then, you know, intervening as a parent early and if they need counseling, cause they're going through some, something, whether it's bullying or challenge, at yeah. school, just being really on top of your kids, but also the number one sort of preventative thing for kids, um, addiction, mental health. One of the, one of the great literature pages is actually having protective factors and sports clubs, engagement, same like adults. Like if you're busy, you don't need substances to kind of keep you through. And so having, you know, your kid, your boys in soccer is probably actually one of the greatest interventions you can do as a parent or whatever it is for their passion. And so that's that plus like a passionate parenting and not being too strict and, and being there if something, there's a challenge. Those are what prevent substance use in youth and then having transparent conversations. Yeah, well, those are all good. And I, I'm going to have to change my intro because I had you as a former nurse, but you are a, as you said, a actual active nurse, which now with all your education, they call you a clinical scientist, which I think is brilliant. And I just want to thank you again it was great meeting you and I've had a wonderful time talking with you over breakfast and, and drinks at the summit, but I love what you're doing. Our world needs more Megan Chumats out there. And I wish you nothing but continued success, not only in your individual practice, but you know, I'm, I'm rooting for Vancouver because <laughs> if you guys can pull off a prototype, you know, of a nationalistic program that is working for addiction, it's really necessary here in Northern California. So you know, Godspeed to you and everything you're doing, Megan. And thanks again for coming on the program. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs. Big hugs.